as we continue our study in Galatians, I did make it into chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago, and I preached on the first six verses. I will review a little bit, but mainly I will stick with one verse when we get to verse 11, that is the sermon today. But I will give an overview of the chapter, uh, a primer for the next couple of weeks as we go through chapter 5 and chapter 6. There are some things in this chapter are very familiar with us. But there's some things a lot of people are not going to realize. The things that are familiar with them, they probably have out of context and they don't recognize that. But let's start in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you are fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well, who hindered you from doing, obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you, you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole war is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there are no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O oh God, that we know what it means to be a Christian because we have the Christian message written down in the Scriptures, Father God. We thank you for a clear portrait of your Son's Christ and all the work of atonement on our behalf. We thank you for clear understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. There is no guesswork involved, Father God. 
We thank you for clarity. We thank you for illumination. We thank you for revelation, Father God. We thank you that we know, that we know, that we know we're sons of God as the Spirit cries, Abba, Father, in our heart, Lord God. We thank you, O oh God, that those who follow your Son will not stumble in the darkness, Lord God. We thank you that your word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, Father God. We thank you that we can take your word and hide it in our hearts, that we sin not against thee, O oh God. We thank you, O oh God, that you're working all things together for good. For those who love you are called according to your purpose, Father God. Breathe upon this sermon. Give us illumination today, Father God. Make it real and relevant for the... 21st century that we live in, Father God. Let us understand it in its proper context. Let us understand it the way it was written 2,000 years ago for the Galatian church, the way Paul meant it, Father God. And let it apply it to our lives and our church today, God. In all things we do, let Christ be glorified. Amen. A lot of reading, a lot of familiar texts here about walking in the Spirit. I think we all like that. We all notice a tension between the Spirit and the flesh. We can all say amen to that. Many times we feel it, we experience it, we want to do those things we want to do, but we find that we do other things we don't want to do, and so on and so forth, and there's a very familiar text of scripture, but I think of it a little bit is misunderstood, and I want to do the best I can to explain it. I'm going to speak, keep the sermon to just verse 11 today, and that is the offense of the cross, I think we have that up there, that's the title of the message, but I'm going to give an overview of this chapter just to let us understand where we are, to just have some context of what Paul is speaking about over here. If I can get my notes together, okay. We know in the first two chapters, Paul was defending the gospel. We know in the third and the fourth chapter, Paul was explaining the gospel. We know in the fifth and the sixth chapter, Paul is teaching how to live by the gospel and live by the power of the gospel. Freedom in this chapter is the keynote word. It's freedom not just to sin, not freedom to sin, it's freedom not to sin. It's freedom not to be bound by any kind of religion or any kind of law to, to be accepted by God, neither circumcision or the law of Moses or anything in the Old Testament or any new religion mankind wants to make up. Man is totally accepted just by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, you would think, all right, we know that, but do we live by it? Is it really living in us? And we're going to find out maybe today or during the next couple of weeks that many of us fail to live by that. And we hold a standard up and we want people to fulfill a standard and jump through a couple of hoops for us and then maybe we'll accept them. Uh, we all fall short and pray to that. Uh, Paul moves now into the practical application of Christ dying for sinners, which brings people close to God and reception of this Holy Spirit just by hearing in faith. It's not by works of the law. We know that in Galatians chapter 3. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing in faith? Well, we know it's by hearing in faith. And the great beauty of life in the Spirit is for the church. Paul here in this context is not speaking to individuals. When he says walk by the Spirit, how many people say you see that as an individualistic uh, sort of uh, uh, exhortation? Well, he's speaking not to individuals, he's speaking to a church, he's speaking to a community of people, he's telling the church, he's telling this church to walk by the Spirit. Don't hinder the Holy Spirit. Don't hinder the Spirit by preaching the law of Moses or circumcision or the doctrines of men. Preach Christ and the Holy Spirit will be there liberating men from the sins and the power of sin and the power of Satan. For only Christ is the light of the world. So continue to preach Christ and you will walk in the Spirit and not 
satisfy desires of the flesh. And that's what's going on here. Many times we take it, and it is a personal, we, we apply it to our personal lives. I'll speak about this more in a couple of weeks. But Paul is speaking in a, in a communal context over here, and that is important for us to understand. And what this life is in this communal context is what he says in verse 6. He says it's a life of serving one another. It's faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ, expressing itself towards love, towards God, and towards one another. That's what true saving faith does. How do you know if you have true saving faith? Well, you love God and you serve one another. That is what Paul is teaching us here. And this is the great freedom from law-keeping is not a license for sin. We know that in Romans chapter 6, 1. Should I continue to sin, Paul says, that grace may increase? May it never be. Who would do such a thing? There was always people that thought that there was a loophole in Paul's message. There was this sort of, how can you say, uh, design flaw. You know, when you get a, an email saying, well, you know, your carburetor just doesn't, won't work in a, in, a, in a 92 car or something like that. There's a recall. And that's what they're trying to say here. Paul's message isn't all together. There's, there's a character flaw. There's a, there's a design flaw in this. And what's going to happen if all these people are just saved by grace, then they're going to continue to sin. And Paul says, may it never be. That's what Paul's opponents were claiming. This message of Jesus only uh, and this spirit thing, whatever that might mean, is going to stop people from sinning. Uh, it's impossible. We need to have circumcision. We need to have law. We need to have rules. We need to have regulations. We need to have a committee. Uh, we need to watch people. We have to keep an eye on people. Make sure they're doing the right thing and throw a little cold water at them when things and their passions are all getting heated and frustrated. We'll, we'll, we'll tame them from getting drunk and we'll tell them what not to do and so on and so forth. Well, Paul you know, strongly fought against such... Uh, understanding of the gospel. It's a perverse and, how can I say, an unregenerate way of understanding the gospel. That's a man's understanding of Christianity. But when you're born again, they don't realize something. Something's happening in you. We don't want to sin no more. Drunkenness loses its fun. Fornicating, sexual sin, it's not fun anymore because we know we're sinning against God. And, and it brings us to tears now and, and then it brings us closer to God through tears and repentance. This the unsaved can't see what's going on in a new man's heart. Amen? Amen? It's important for us to know that. But actually what's going on here in Galatians is that the promises of the new covenant had come. With a new heart receiving God's spirit. That Christ, as it says here in verse 24, of chapter 1 verse 4, He gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil age. And He did this all according to the will of God. As it says here in chapter 5, verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we've received the Spirit by hearing in faith, he now says then, if you live by the Spirit, continue to walk in the Spirit. For those who walk in the Spirit, or are led by the Spirit, who keep in step with the Spirit, produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience, goodness and kindness and self-control and gentleness. When you have this fruit guiding you, he says, you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. We read the deeds of the flesh. Should I read them again? It's a, a sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry, sorcery, enmity. That's anger with each other and strife and jealousy and fits of rage and rivalries and dissension, divisions, envy and drunkenness and sexual orgies and things like that. That's, that's the flesh. That's what this world is we live in. That's what we used to do before... Jesus came into our life. 
But understand something. When the fruit of the Spirit is guarding our life, we will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh because the deeds of the flesh are hostile to human harmony. The world is a mess. Can we say amen? amen? Is the world filled with the deeds of the flesh or is it filled with the fruit of the Spirit? The deeds of the flesh are hostile. Please say it. The deeds of the flesh to human harmony. If there's disharmony in the house, it could be because of the deeds of the flesh. And that's why he says, don't, don't let there be dissensions and rivalries and divisions amongst you and strife and enmity and jealousy and fits of anger. You cannot have harmony. There cannot be harmony in the Christian church if we're preaching Moses. That elevates pride. It doesn't bring in humility. But when you preach the cross, we're all even at the cross. Egalitarians only found in the cross. Because there's no one superior, there's no one inferior. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female. There's just one new creation in Christ. Nothing can break the pride of man than the grace of God. And the grace of God crushes human pride without, how can I say, degrading humanity. But at the same time, it elevates humanity to the highest place of being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms without inflating our egos. Only grace, only the cross can do this. Humble us and exalt us at the same time without building our egos. Only Christ crucified can do that. And that's Paul's whole point here. You're going to build the church up on religious, legalistic teaching, or you're going to build it up on preaching of the cross. You want harmony in the church? Don't ever forget why you're in the church. Because you all come together as a new creation, because you've got something in common. You're all sinners in need of a Savior. How can I have pride over my brother? How can I have pride over my sister? How can I think myself better than another man who sits next to me? How can we're all saved by the blood of Christ? But if I'm teaching Moses and you know I'm doing, you know, I'm making sure I'm here every Sabbath and I, I go to every Bible study and I go to every prayer meeting, then guess what? I'm doing a little better than you, ain't I? What does that promote? Humility or a superiority complex? But if you preach the cross, we all walk out humble. It's sort of like going, woe is me, and great is God. Woe is me, and great is God. That's what's going on in this fifth chapter. You might miss that. And I don't want, this is where Paul's coming from. Preach Christ and Him crucified. Don't preach the law. The more you represent Christ and what He's done for you, the more humble we become, the more fruit of the Spirit we have, the more peace and harmony we have within our midst, the more gentle of humanity we become. If not, then verse 15 happens. We begin to bite and devour one another. Because why? There's no fundamental change of the heart. Only preaching Christ and Him crucified changes the heart. If you preach the law, through the law, Romans 3.19 says, comes the knowledge of sin. Also in Romans chapter 7.5 it says, for while we were living in the flesh, that means we're not saved, our sinful passions aroused by the law will at work in the members of our body to produce death. You produce, you preach religion, I will tell you, no matter how much you dress it up, it produces death in the heart. Because you can't keep 
the law of Moses. You can't keep any law of God. You can keep man-made doctrines. Me and my wife went out to a nice restaurant one day. Park Avenue. And we're sitting there and we're having a nice dinner. And I went to the men's room and there was a valet there, a nice gentleman. And I could see he was a religious type of man, probably from Kenya or somewhere, a big dark man, a handsome gentleman. And then later on my wife came in and said, guess what I just saw? The woman valet had her feet in the sink. She was a Muslim. And she was washing her feet, because that was the time of day you wash your feet. This is law-keeping. This doesn't change the heart. This is ludicrous. God's not concerned about this kind of stuff. But that's what religion is. You can keep man-made doctrines. You can wash your feet in the middle of a restaurant at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. But at the end of the day, it doesn't change anything. It might look good. It changes nothing. But this is what religion in any type, shape, form, it does. So when I speak about the law of Moses here, you can make it anything you want. It's religion. It doesn't work. We need a fundamental change of the heart. We need to be born again. Period. The famous verse of 16, the fight between the spirit and the flesh, is more corporate, as I already said to Paul, than it is individualistic. If they follow the law of Moses the toxic way, they fall from grace. They're severed from Christ. And what happens when you're severed from Christ, when you're not living under grace? You bite and devour each other, as verse 15 says. And what happens when you start to bite and devour one another? It happens what Jesus says. We cease to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And what does Jesus say? The only thing left when the salt has lost its saltiness is to be thrown out as manure and trampled under the feet of Gentiles. To keep the cross central to our preaching all the time is of the utmost importance to our spiritual life and our spiritual health. For nothing humbles the pride of man than the lifting up of Jesus Christ. And some men need to hear it quite often to think that people could be saved year in and year out and hear preaching year in and year out and still elevate self above Christ is it just goes to show you have to be saved by grace the human heart is so slow and unwilling to learn at times but when it comes to our verse tonight but if I brothers still preach circumcision or religion why am I still being persecuted he asks in that case the offense of the cross has been removed There are many implications and nuances to this verse that we're going to speak about tonight, the best I can anyway, that shapes Paul's thought on the matter, but it affects all of us today. Uh, to be sure, the first thing, the two things I want to talk about is uh, the misrepresent misrepresentation of Paul's gospel. They were actually accusing Paul of preaching a watered-down gospel. Do you know that? They were saying that a Jew, a devout Jew would listen to Paul and say, you've got to be out of your mind. These pagan Gentiles, they're going to run roughshod over you. If you preach that message of, of, of grace and no circumcision, no law of Moses, no rules, no regulations, understand Paul, all they're going to do is sin. You're watering down the message just to get a crowd. 
It sounds good. Doesn't that sound good? Grace, yeah, praise God. Why not continue to sin? But Paul understands to an unregenerate man, to a man who's not saved yet, he has no understanding. So to the man who's not saved, being born again sounds like this is a party. But once you've repented and you're broken on the inside, the last thing we want to do is fall into sin. And when we do, we're not comfortable in it. We start to change from the inside out. And this is what Paul was protecting. How important it is for us to know that. He wasn't watering it down. He was protecting that which Christ died for. The next thing I want to talk about is this, what we call the offense of the cross. You'll find out something tonight. The offense of the cross is the wisdom and power of God. From man's point of view, the cross is offensive. I need to be saved. Why, I'm not good enough. My mother wasn't good enough. My grandmother wasn't good enough. I had a man tell me that. Almost strangled me one day. Are you telling me no one in my family is going to heaven? He had me in the corner. And by God's grace, I said, were they born again? He said no. And I said, I'm sorry, they're not mad. Cannot compromise. He's a good friend of mine today. And every once in a while he comes to church. Spoke to him a couple weeks ago, gave him a book, we're going through the men's discipleship. And uh, I told him that day, God gave me wisdom when I told him that. He said, are you telling me? And I said, yeah. I said, actually, Jesus is telling you, not me. I said, how many good friends could tell you what I just told you? I didn't flatter you. I didn't stroke you. I told you something no other man could possibly tell you. It's because I love you. That's why. And he's a good friend of mine today. And he comes to church. He comes on Monday nights every now and again. And prayerfully, he comes to know Christ one day. But the point is, is that this is God's wisdom. We're going to analyze this in a couple of ways. Let's talk about this being watered down. When it comes to Paul watering down the message of salvation, this is not a 21st century new phenomenon. We think today, uh, watered down the gospel, and we'll talk a little bit about that, is not more legalism, it is more libertarianism. People water down the gospel today by not speaking about sin, by not speaking about hell, by not speaking about the wrath of God, not by speaking about damnation. They're scared to touch on these subjects. Why? Because people won't come in the doors. And if you're scared of that, they won't preach it. That is a watered down gospel today. But 2,000 years ago, a watered down gospel was don't preach Moses, don't preach circumcision. It was legalism. Don't preach legalism. Because people don't want to get circumcised. Just give it away. Give this Jesus away. Everybody loves the kingdom of God. It's for free. They're all coming in. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, Paul says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, unhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What Paul is saying is that we're transparent. We speak the truth in love. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 2.17. For we're not like so many peddlers of the word of God. But we're men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God. In Christ we speak. 
Paul was anything but watering down the message. Paul called it what it is, and we're going to speak about it today. That's why he calls it the offense of the cross. If I was still speaking, preaching circumcision, if I was still preaching this sort of watered down gospel, if I was preaching this, then why am I being persecuted? Because he was preaching the offense of the cross. And it's, it's important for us to notice, it's, it's, it's the word in the Greek is, is skandalon. And what it means is, it's a word if you read, how many people read the New Testament this week? Oh, please raise some hands. Lie to me. Lie to me. Thank you. God, help us. Chances are, if you read the Bible a little bit this week, or how about this year? All right? Anybody read the Bible this year? Chances are you read this word many different times in different contexts and expressed different ways. It means a cause for stumbling. It means to cause to sin or fall into sin. It means a trap, a block, a temptation. Uh, it's used many times in the New Testament, mainly in the context to cause someone else to stumble. It's deliberate. It's calculated. It's always in a negative context. It always has a negative connotation. The form of the Greek word here, as Paul uses offense, is only used three times in the New Testament. Every other time it's uh, temptation, it's stumbling, it's falling, it's a block or it's a trap. But here it's used as offense. The other two times in the New Testament, Paul uses it once in Romans chapter 9 verse 33. I'm sure you all know that verse. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I'm sure you know that verse of Scripture too, because they're quoting Isaiah 28, 16. I'm sure you know that verse of Scripture. But I'm going to read this verse of Scripture. It says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, listen, and a rock of offense, or a rock of stumbling, a snare, a trap. I, I set in Zion a cause for stumbling. We see the deliberate work of God. It's a reference, a clear reference to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and that a man must put his faith in him. And to those who trust in him, it says here in, I, in Romans 9.23, I will not put to shame. So the three times we find it used in the New Testament, it's a quote of, two times it's a quote of Isaiah 28. It's a reference to Jesus Christ and faith in him. But Paul here uses it a little differently. He's not talking about just faith in Christ. He's talking about the cross. And this is what I don't want to mean, uh, miss here. And it's important for all of us. Why? God put an offense before man purposely. Don't miss that. Every time this Greek word is used, it is deliberate. Remember in Matthew 16 when, when uh, Peter says, May it never be, how can you go to Jerusalem and suffer and die? And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance. It's the same word, scandalon. There it's a hindrance. But Isaiah is saying that God did it deliberately. Paul is quoting it. The offense. What Paul is saying in verse 11, if I'm being persecuted, then why am I still preaching the deliberate offense of the cross? Since I know whoever preaches the deliberate offense of the cross will be persecuted. I don't know about you, but I don't rejoice in being rejected. 
And I'm not happy when my family thinks I'm crazy. I'm not happy when my friends still think I'm nuts. They, they know I'm a loving guy, but I preach Christ and Him crucified, and we will not compromise. I will live it uncompromised, and people don't understand it. It's easy to water down the cross, and what does Jesus say? Be careful when everybody welcomes you and speaks well of you. For so they did to the false prophets. Why? Because we took the scandal on. We took the offense of the, of the cross out of our preaching. But why does he do this? I'll tell you what. Paul teaches us. Human pride is against God. It's, it's undetectable by humanity. There is such a hostility in every human being's heart. You hear today, no matter who it is, no matter where they are, no matter how religious someone is, there is a genuine hostility to the grace of God in every human being. And the only thing that brings it out and shows its complete ugliness is the offense of the cross. Because the offense of the cross tells a human being, no matter how good you are, you cannot go to heaven without Jesus Christ. And that is when you see the offense. And that's when you see people offended and pride get up. And veins pop out of people's skulls because they don't like to hear that message. The scandal. The offense. The deliberate offense given by God to face humanity and say, You must repent and come to my son. Otherwise, you will perish. It is meant to offend. But not to cause the stumble. It's meant to humble, not to stumble. It's meant for people to hear in faith and say, I too need Christ. The cross is unflattering to human pride. With all its self-sufficiency and its achievements, it's downright hostile to what humanity thinks of themselves. This is the cross. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 20. He says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? That's the educator. Where is he? Where's the debater? He's being sarcastic. Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, that means creation, the world did not come to know God through this wisdom. It pleased God through the folly, that's the cross, of what we preach, Christ crucified needed to be born again, to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we, we don't give signs, we don't give wisdom, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, a scandal on, an offense to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The scandal on is the power of God. The offense is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
There's a purpose to preaching the cross. It is to turn men, humanity's hearts, inside out to really see what they really are without God in their life. The real, I'm talking about the true and living God. God shows freely and most wisely. Remember this. I'm going to take a sip of water. God shows freely and most wisely to offend human pride. He did it to offend human independence and human self-sufficiency through the foolishness of preaching the cross. This is the main point. But to those who believe, just the ordinary folk who know their sinners, it's the power of God to salvation. The second thing we want to speak about is God's not being capricious when he does this. His reason is sane and it's clear. He says it two verses later in verses 28 and 29. Let's read it. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. That means nobodies. And he brings nothing to these. I'm sorry. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, you might miss it here, but man thinks very highly of himself. Do you know that? Man just loves to go into the universe and discover the things in the universe without any regard that there is a divine being. Mankind really likes to believe that he is the center of the universe. And some will dare to think that there's some kind of aliens out there. And, you know, the alien theorists, they love to believe that we're part of the alien race. I saw a nice show that Jesus was an alien. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, just in case you weren't sure. Jesus was an alien. Mary was an alien. And a couple other. There might be some here today. I'm not too sure. But they believe everybody's an alien. But man thinks extremely highly of himself. And this is how highly man thinks of himself. Man thinks that he believes and he deserves to go to heaven with all its eternal rewards therein. No matter how they live in this world, they should enter into eternal bliss all on account of their perceived goodness and self-merit. Isn't that nice of humanity? It makes no difference. There's no need of salvation, no need to repent, no need to put faith in Christ, no need to be forgiven, no need for mercy, no need for grace. Just live, eat, and drink, and then everybody goes to heaven. But that is very popular today. Very popular. Go to any unfortunate uh, wake. Everybody's gone to heaven. Everybody. It's so strong of a message, Christians can't stand the message of the cross. There are men who are saved and claim Christ, but they can't stand to hear the message of Christ only. All of this is God's wisdom. It's God's scandal. It's, it's God's offense of human nature. God hates human nature. But he loves human beings. Don't forget that. He hates pride. God opposes the proud 
And who does he exalt? The humble. And the humble are those who accept Christ. Not who think low of themselves, but think nothing of themselves and accept Christ. That's humility. Humanity hates the implications of the cross with its ultimate truth that Christ is the only way of salvation. A sinful humanity dislikes being told there's no other way but through Christ. That only humility expressed in repentance and faith in Christ saves a sinner. It irritates people and they judge, they stand in judgment of the God of the Bible. I've had people tell me I would never believe in Christ. I would never believe in the God of the Bible. And I said, you're absolutely right, you never will. But i got good news for you, if God chose you, you will. Amen. You can rest assured, God will have his way in your heart, whether you like it or not. And God will win you over. And they get more irritated. But people are irritated by the God of the Bible. They love to stand in judgment and counsel the God of the Bible that there's a better way of doing it. And it makes them hostile towards those who proclaim the gospel. Listen to what John Stout says. The message of circumcision, the message of religion is quite inoffensive. And it's popular because it's flattering. The message of Christ crucified is, however, offensive to human pride. It's unpopular because it's unflattering. So to preach circumcision in any kind of religion is to avoid persecution. To preach Christ crucified is to invite it. People hate to be told that they cannot be saved only but by the foot of the cross, and they oppose the preacher who tells them so. He goes on to say, I quote, To preach circumcision, religion, is to tell sinners they, need, they cannot save themselves by their own good works. To preach Christ crucified is to tell them that they cannot and that, the on, that only Christ can save them through the cross. And this always will bring persecution and opposition. Opposition and persecution is a sure sign that someone is a true Christian minister of the gospel. Paul suffered hard at the Hands of people, do you know something about this book of Galatians? Can I spend a minute telling you something about this? The people reading this letter 2,000 years ago, go back 2,000 years and they're reading this letter. It might not mean anything to you right now. But if you know the, 16, uh, the 14th chapter of the book of Acts, you would know something. Paul went to this church. He did, Galatians, it's actually just southern Turkey. And he preached Christ crucified. And guess what? They loved him. Matter of fact, they thought he was Zeus. They started worshiping him because he performed one miracle. And they said, the gods have come down. Zeus and Hermes have come down. A week later, they dragged him out and they stoned him to death. Are you familiar with Acts chapter 14? Go home and read it, starting in verse 19. They stoned him to death for this message. So when Paul is talking about being persecuted for faith, these people that are reading this letter of Galatians for the first time, they were there. They saw Paul stoned and left for dead. Some of them did anyway. But guess what? He wasn't dead. They got around him and he rose and he went on his way. Persecution 
in America today has changed a little bit. I'll get into that in application. But Christ was suffered and Christ was rejected by his own people. The prophets of the Old Testament suffered at the hands of their own people because they heard, they hated to hear about their sins and repentance and the consequences. They beheaded John the Baptist, all true Christians, as Paul says in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you not just to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name's sake. We live in a society, and I pray every Christian hears me. We live in a society that hates any kind of suffering. And we try to avoid it at all costs. We'll take all sorts of medications. We will go to see all sorts of doctors. We don't want to suffer emotionally, physically, mentally. We don't want to suffer spiritually. Uh, there's almost a sense of entitlement amongst Americans today and even the suggestion of suffering. Even the poorest in America do well. For some reason, suffering is, is an offense. Christian pulpits have conveniently removed the teaching of hell out of you. Go to, you, go to, you go to church for 30 years and you'll never hear a minister talk about hell. You won't talk, they won't talk about the wrath of God. They won't talk about repentance. They won't talk about sin. They won't talk about sexual sin because forget about it. I mean, everybody's committed and they think, oh, everybody's going. Let me tell you right now, if you hear you live in sexual sin, the Bible says the kingdom of God is not for you. Period. Please, I tell you, I love you. But if practicing sexual immorality, Paul says, do not be deceived by empty words. Ephesians 5, 6, do not be deceived by empty words. Those who practice immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Period. You go to churches for 20 years, you won't hear ministers say Why? It offends people. Very offensive. We live in a culture that hates to be offended. As a matter of fact, there's a new political right. It's the right not to be offended. Everybody's so hypersensitive. Well, he offended me. You know, he said, you know, don't commit sex. Well, oh, don't get drunk. He offended me. And, you know, he called me Irish drunk and I'm offended. And they called me this and I'm offended. Well, I'm offended. I'm going to sue you. And we love to sue one another. And we love to throw, well, I'm offended. And everybody's offended. But guess who's really offended? God's offended. And his cross proves it. And the cross teaches us that God has the last word. At least any man would boast. No one's going to boast in the presence of God. As long as humanity has a breath in their lungs, they will think it is a safe distance to throw stones and insults at God. That's how bad human nature is. Even... So-called Christians will get uncomfortable around strong teaching. I've heard it myself. The very thing the Bible calls the wisdom and the power of God are cast aside as antiquated doctrines of the past that offend humanity and it doesn't bring the masses into the church. It's all about getting people into the church so that the egos of ministers can flourish because there's big crowds where they water down the gospel and people are living in sin and half of the choir is living in sin and the ministers are living in sin but don't say a word 
Just don't say nothing because look, everybody's happy. There's a pseudo fruit of the Spirit. Did you know that? It's called compromise and tolerance. As long as the crowd is singing, the crowd is happy, don't disturb it. Don't worry about what the minister's doing. Don't worry about the, what the worship leader's doing. Don't worry about what half of the choir is doing. Don't inquire. Don't worry about what they're doing. Everybody's happy. That's like the old story of the pink elephant. You know, it's like when you live with an alcoholic, you know what I mean? Just don't say nothing. You come in the house and, you know, my father was passed out drunk. And he would give me $2 to go get him a pack of cigarettes when my eyeball was hanging out because I just got hit in the head with a hockey puck. And, but don't say nothing. You know, there's something wrong here. There's a man drunk in your house all the time. Yeah, but we don't, we, don't, we don't say nothing. We don't want to offend anyone. That's the Christian church today. Let's sing our happy songs. Let's get our happy feelings. But don't make my life uncomfortable. Whatever you do. Get rid of the offense of the cross. It's a false fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is not God. True Christian harmony of love, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness, understand something comes at a price. And those who are led by the Spirit, who are filled by the Spirit, who have the mind of Christ, make it their choice to love one another has nothing to do with an emotion or a feeling. It is the command of God. If you see me wash each other's feet, do unto each other as you have seen me do. For a student is not greater than a teacher. Blessed are you if you know these things and you do them. I'll close with this. Though I got more I could say. The cross with all its implications is God's personal confrontation with humanity. Let me tell you something about being saved. There are many seeker-friendly churches that water down the message. They rarely speak about sin. It's about happy faces and smiles and a good atmosphere. Do you know that's what the Church gurus say they has to have a happy atmosphere. Otherwise they won't come back. And what happens now is people come and salvation is to come face to face with the God of the universe. And these churches, they try to backdoor them in. Let's come in singing, praise God, you know what I mean? They come in, but they're not looking at the cross. They don't, don't look at the cross. That's in the middle room. Remember the pink elephant? Don't look at the cross. Just come on in. Get happy. Feel good. But don't look at the cross. And for 10 and 20 and 30 years, they back into the church without ever looking at the cross. And Jesus says, I never knew you. The cross, if you're going to go to heaven, you got to come to your defense of the cross. Where God stares you down face to face. And you feel like you're the only one in that room. And God has pinned you out. And God is telling you to repent. And offering you eternal life. You cannot. There's no soft way. Every time God convicts a man of their sin. He convicts that same man of the goodness of Jesus Christ in the cross. <clears throat> But because it offends some people, it 
It's the smell of death, Paul says. It's the smell of death to death, to those who are perishing. But those who are being saved, it's the smell of life. And for the sake of filling pews, and for the sake of other things, stroking egos, I don't know, mankind has watered down the preaching of the cross. And what we have are a lot of stillborn spiritual people going to church, thinking they're saved. And they will never enter into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you like always, Lord, for your word that's so true and so cutting. We pray so timely also, Father. We pray that our names are truly written in the Lamb's book of life, Father God. For there's nothing more than what everyone in this room needs. There's nothing more than what every human being needs is to be confronted by the offense of the cross and come to a true understanding that without God, we are nothing. That we can do nothing without Jesus Christ. We can never be accepted by you on our own merit. But you have offered us everything for our salvation and eternal goodness in your Son. Lord, I pray that by your grace you open up hearts to receive you today. Remember what Christ has done on our behalf. God, as Christians, never let us be ashamed of the need to be saved. Let, him, let us never water down the message of the gospel. Let us be true and uncompromising, unapologetic for the need of humanity to be saved and born again. Now we commit this sermon into your care. In Christ.